When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When I think about, gosh, what does impact mean? It's very easy to measure the activities or the number of touches, but I frankly find that somewhat meaningless. It's really about what is that impact? How much of a difference, what kind of a meaningful difference did you make in someone's life? Why did I become an executive coach? I saw lots of great people fail to get ahead at work, while their much less talented peers blew right past them. That made me furious, but also curious. What were great people getting wrong? It came down to helping them re-examine what drove success and then helping them make critical shifts one hard truth at a time. Feel like you're doing everything you were told, but you're not moving ahead at work nor having the impact you seek? Then welcome to 97% Effective with Michael Winderoff where we skip feel-good, happy talk and engage experts in pointed conversations about what it really takes to move the needle at work and your career. So if you feel stalled or frustrated or seek that extra edge as you move to the next level, then look no further. This is the Hard Truths Playbook you never got. Hi, I'm Michael Wenderoth, and you're listening to 97% Effective. GeekWire has called my guest today a Seattle startup mainstay. That's right. If you're in tech or startups in Seattle, USA for my international listeners, there's an awfully good chance you've crossed paths or benefited from the work of Rebecca Lovell. Rebecca is CEO of Denali Founder Consulting and general partner at Tag Ventures. Prior to these roles, it's actually really a question of what she hasn't done in the Seattle startup ecosystem in the past two decades. She's held diverse leadership roles in investor groups, incubation labs, advisory firms, executive search, law firms, as well as with the city of Seattle's Office of Economic Development. Oh, and that's on top of all these side hustles, volunteer work, of which I would call out Techstars, the Female Founders Alliance, teaching venture capital and entrepreneurship at the Foster School of Business at the University of Washington, where she also did her MBA, and she serves as the chair for the National Center for American Entrepreneurship. So all those roles, all those titles, but I've invited Rebecca today because the central theme that comes up in everything that she does, making an impact on her community. The community in this case is Seattle. We're gonna talk about how she views the focus of this first season, power and influence, and how they've helped her increase her impact and how she encourages entrepreneurs in these areas as well. Rebecca, welcome to 97% Effective. Michael, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So excited. And I was so excited a couple of days ago when I saw, I think it is the first CEO who has posted a recruiting song. You were on the piano singing a cover. What's the backstory? What was the inspiration? 
You're so well researched as always, Michael, but I don't have to tell you LinkedIn is fairly cluttered with people looking for work, with people looking to recruit. And it is a not so secret passion of mine that karaoke is, is one of my many loves. And I was up one night, couldn't sleep after I put my baby down and thought, you know, gosh, what would I sing to my next amazing hire? And I rewrote the lyrics to one of my favorite karaoke hits, Adele, Someone Like You, and took 10 minutes the next day to record it and put it out there on the internet. You found me. So I guess it's working. I'm cutting through the clutter. Well, it, it's, it's, it's blowing up, getting lots of likes and comments. Um, how's it working? Have you gotten anything back yet in response? I've gotten lots of love. Um, we'll see what, how love converts to applicants, but yeah, I will keep you posted. Well, being willing to stand out and being willing to try new things, very much hallmarks of what entrepreneurs need to do. We're going to dive into that. We're going to focus, as I said, on the topic of power and influence, particularly here as it relates to the startup world. To start, would love for you to first share your perspectives on two core areas. The first, we've defined in this show and think of power as simply a force and influence as power in use. And if you think about the two of these words in those definitions, they're very much means to ends. And I would submit from reading a lot about you and the roles that you've done, what I said in the introduction, that you think most of these two forces, power and influence, is helping you create impact, mm -hmm. your ends. How do you define creating impact for yourself and, and how do power and influence uh, fit into that? Thank you. Well, that, that is a very kind way of describing the sort of corkscrew of a career path. If you look at my profile, it's certainly nonlinear, but if there is a through line, I, I think that's a great way to capture it. It is about a mission orientation and, and making an impact. And so you know, when I, if you accept the hypothesis that you make the maximum impact when you're doing what you're best in the world at, been a bit of a journey for me to, to determine what that is, but I would describe it probably in two ways. My superpowers, if I have them, are um, really helping entrepreneurs in particular tell their best story. Um, and I love making connections. So the way that shows up in a practical way in terms of wielding this influence is specifically helping startup founders with their investor pitch, um, as well as making meaningful business connections, right? And so when I think about, gosh, what does impact mean? It's very easy to measure the activities or the number of touches, but I frankly find that somewhat meaningless. It's really about what is that impact? How much of a difference, what kind of a meaningful difference did you make in someone's life? And, and I have the benefit of having done this for a very long time so I can enjoy the results over a pretty long story arc. And one example of that might be, I think back to 2011, uh, I have been a mentor for Techstars, which is a technology accelerator for about a decade. And one of the companies there kind of struggled through the program. I was, I was a coach for their pitch. Lo and behold, a mere eight years later, they're one of Seattle's unicorns. So they're valued at over a billion dollars, right? In 2019, awesome. which is amazing. But here's where sort of my role comes back in. In 2020, um, I had put together a program 
uh, to support entrepreneurs of color, uh, uh, startups in particular. And I called Manny Medina, the CEO, and he took my call and gladly came in and spoke to this cohort of incredible founders. Now, if that's power and influence, you can tell me, but I can tell you it felt great to be able to connect the dots and knowing that mm. I'd maybe made a difference in Manny's life 10 years ago. Um, and he came back and paid it forward to a group of people that I really cared about, um, was just lovely, but it's those kinds of stories and that kind of a longitudinal impact that really matters to me and gets me out of bed in the morning. I, I love that story. I mean, that's over a decade and, and you've been a fixture in the Seattle community, but you know, that one individual and that team that you helped back then and coming back and then helping, again, even more work, kind of amplifying your work, if we can think about it. Absolutely. Being a force multiplier. That's that's the work. Force multiplier. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. I love that. And, and I wanted to ask you about this second part. Mm. Um, you know, you choose your words very carefully. You're an excellent writer and editor. It goes way back. Um, <laughs> And you used uh, um, the phrase uh, when you endorsed my book, mm. and you read it very closely, and I've seen you use these words before, mm. but use the phrase to own your power. Mm. Mm -hmm. What do you mean by that? Without sounding too, like, Stuart Smalley positive affirmation, for me, at the heart of it is just the fundamental belief that I have something unique and valuable to contribute. That in fact, I belong in the room where it happens and just kind of accepting that and internalizing mm -hmm. it has been step one. Um, the flip side of that, I think is one of my favorite movie quotes is from Super Troopers. Uh, and it's desperation is a stinky cologne, right? Not a good look being desperate. So, so combine those two thoughts and work with me here. You know, a lot of work gets done in meetings, in those rooms. Um, so like you said, I am very conscious of how I use my voice in these conversations where decisions are made. So my three kind of takeaways are in meetings, I really try not to suck all the oxygen out of the room just to hear my own voice. Um, frankly, I think that reads as desperate not a great look. I don't need to do that. Um, two, I absolutely will chime in, um, and amplify and literally use the name of the person. If I feel that someone else is being stepped on or talked over. So that's a really strategic use of my voice. And then the last thing that I do, and this is about sort of being comfortable in my own space is I use the kind of improv comedy technique of yes. And like I listen very closely to the conversation that's happening, choose when to insert myself, repeat a point, maybe reframe it, use that person's name and add my own perspective, right? So it's a very strategic way that I try to insert myself in the conversation. It enables me to frankly shape the narrative a bit about where the meeting is headed, where the decisions are going and add in my own perspective. So there's a lot there of, of being very present Absolutely. Super present, the listening <laughs> and then amplifying others and building on what others are saying, but taking it where you'd like it to Yeah, go. that's my style and that's the way I like to show up. Yeah, are there ways, because you, you have worked with so many entrepreneurs, it's clear you have spent time as a pitch coach <laughs> and you've kind of talked about some of these themes, but are, are there ways you see people not 
own their power, mm. to use your phrase, or give away their power? Yeah. I mean, what does that look like? Yes. And, and so shifting back to sort of my day job instead of one of my side hustles. So I run a consulting business. I work with really expert practitioners. They are good at what they do. And many of them struggle with holding boundaries with clients, right? You, you work with clients as well. There's, I think it sometimes feels like there's an inherent power dynamic or power imbalance in the sort of client partner relationship. But it turns out um, the customer isn't always right. Right. And so, <laughs> so, so, so this is sort of threading the needle where the, the work that I do with my colleagues is helping them hold boundaries. And what I find is that mm. when clients sort of violate those boundaries or they miss deadlines or deliverables or show up late, every time we accept that, we cede power to them and they value us less. And it's like um, Seinfeld would say, we don't have hand in the relationship, right? If we allow that kind of behavior to continue. So I spend a lot of time working with these very smart experts on how to hold boundaries. Um, and we find that, that clients respect and value us when we show up as um, thought partners, when we are directive and not sort of just order takers, if you will. And, and how do, there's often with a lot of people who are polite, you know, they don't want to kind of jump in and hold this hard boundary or be rude about it. And it's not to say you have to be rude, but are there some techniques that you use to help people mm. hold those tight boundaries and not cede the power? Yes, I think some of it really comes to uh, your own process. So when we see that something has gone wrong, I always like to look in the mirror first and and um, ask my colleagues to do the same. It's like, gosh, the client was late. I'm like, hey. Did we set the right expectation with the client? Like, did, did were we actually very clear and concise in what those expectations are? And many times we're not. And so we work on practices like, hey, you have a video call, a phone call with a client. Let's capture what we believe the takeaways were. Hey, you're going to get me those approved credit card uh, receipts by October 15th, right? Make that very clear. So... So we own a lot of that. Um, and then it's, it's frankly a lot easier to follow up and say, hey, here's what we agreed on, right? So this is, this is a collective, like this is how our partnership works. It's, it's very much a relationship and everyone has to perform for it to work. Yeah, I like that also, this clarity, we and the idea of a partnership, mm -hmm. but holding people accountable as well. It's still hard. To it's still hard. <laughs> I mean, I, I, one of my most senior consultants was just struggling to work on a, a board presentation for a client um, and just driving herself crazy, couldn't get a hold of him. And he was in Vegas drinking margaritas by a pool. And I was like, okay. We have to decide that at some point we cannot care more about our clients' board meeting than they do. That's hard, right? Because we're pleasers and we want to deliver. But, you know, we once we hold that boundary, that's where we see the behavior change start to happen. I, I, I this point, I just want to add here as executive coaches, right? <laughs> the area that I'm in, we, we talk a lot about you cannot want it more than the client. Oh my God. Yes. You, Yes, you plus one to want that. It more than the client. And <laughs> yeah. so plus one to that. Mm -hmm. at, I, at the very beginning, you touched on, you know, telling your best story mm. and connections, these mm -hmm. two central themes that's helped your 
you in your career as well as entrepreneurs that you've worked with. The research here is very clear. Networking, having a strong network has huge benefits. Weak ties of knowing different folks, being a broker, being mm -hmm. able to, you know, it's a lot of what venture capitalists do, investors do, mm -hmm. having high level friends. You called the CEO, the CEO picks up and returns your call. We see all this, the research from academic institutions, very convincing, but people don't do it. They find it time consuming, inauthentic or self-serving, mm -hmm. or I'm more introverted and I don't kind of go out there and do these things. You have built a, a powerful and meaningful network that helps you, helps those that you've worked with. Um, and you've attended your share of networking activities. You're a busy CEO, you're a mother. As you think about the importance of a network for you and, and your clients and entrepreneurs, are there some top strategies or ways to think about this that that people that don't hold people back from from doing it? What mm, benefits them? Yeah, well, I can certainly share what's worked for me. <laughs> That's my lived experience, and and I would say again, this is this has occurred over fifteen years here um, after grad school in Seattle. Um, but my philosophy has been just you know take that whole networking um, terminology terminology out of your vocabulary. I just play in traffic. I get out there and do stuff that I personally think is cool. Um, I spent a lot of time in my early career saying yes to opportunities, um, but you know, time is not a renewable resource. So I was careful um, in, in what, I, what I chose to do. And where I engaged was not just simply showing up, but like, gosh, where can I join a committee uh, or become a coach? Like, how can I meaningfully engage in a handful of things? And that's what's paid dividends over the years, although I didn't go into it with that end in mind. Um, and, and the way I sort of translate this, and I've been a career coach when I was in grad school, um, and, and I love working with people on their careers in general, or folks who are new to, say, the Seattle startup eco ecosystem, uh, I, I suggest kind of a jukebox approach, and I'm dating myself here, but you remember jukeboxes were Explain like- Explain that, okay, yes. So there used to be this machine <laughs> that would um, actually visibly display a whole bunch of songs, and you put a dollar in the jukebox, uh, and then you get to pick five songs. Well, I always want to know what all the songs are before I make my dollar investment in the best ones. And so what I recommend people do, like if you're in school, Go to all the clubs, but then only join and engage in the ones that resonate with you. Who knows what that what that will be, right? I'm a huge fan of serendipity and keeping an open mind and being curious. Um, you know, same thing for getting to know the Seattle startup ecosystem. You um, look at Meetup, and you can go to an event every single night. So try a bunch of them out, but then pick one or two and make that your thing. It's like, this is what I'm going to do every month and become a staple, a mainstay, apparently, which is what I am, right? A known presence and engage in a way that's, that's meaningful. Um, and, and then I think, uh, I have chosen to really go deep with just maybe two or three people over the course of an evening. Um, uh, 
if you feel awkward, where, oh my gosh, does that mean that there's going to be space between you know, conversations? Might you be standing alone like a junior high dance? Bring a friend or a colleague with you, right? And introduce them around or keep each other company. Do, do what you need to do to feel comfortable and, and like your best self. Um, but, you know, when I think about networking events, I choose to go to community gatherings. Like there's some great speaker I want to see or some startup is pitching and I want to support them. And the lovely thing about that is that everybody in the room is ostensibly there for some reason, right? So you have that in common. And I feel like those kinds of spaces, those gatherings, whether you call it curated, intentional, um, you increase the surface area of your luck. I mean, luck plays a big role in everything, but when you've got a concentrated group of people who are there for a reason, chances are you'll have a great you know, chemistry or connection or something in common with somebody there. So again, go on with that open mind, have those deep conversations and learn what those other connection points might be. That's what's worked for me. You've been listening to 97% Effective with your host, executive coach, Michael Winderoff. If this interview is making you think, make sure to share it with a friend. Now, back to our interview. I also want to ask you, because you mentioned this corkscrew <laughs> career that you've had. Yeah. And for to, to, to jump around to different, I mean, I'd name pretty much all the areas you've done this. And we haven't even mentioned you were a history major right, in college, naturally. right? Who started in industrial <laughs> supply firm out in you know the midwest as one does yeah was you know moving we know that most jobs come to come through networking i mean did a lot of those jobs come through this type of networking Mm. or i imagine the latest roles because now you have reputation and so forth but as you were moving through that arc did the networking also play some role in these different jobs that you've absolutely absolutely so then just how so yeah so so i uh i have always had a plan um, but I'm always willing to go off plan, right? So I'm not just kind of drifting, as, <laughs> hoping that somebody gives me a job, right? So Sounds like an entrepreneur. So. <laughs> so always willing to go off plan. I have been so blessed with nudges, you know, uh, people tapping me on the shoulder throughout my career, um, jobs that weren't ever in my consideration set. And these would be people that I'd formed meaningful relationships with through other work I had done, through some of my volunteerism. But it didn't start that way, right? I mean, it started with me saying, okay, six years with industrial supply distribution, I'm good. I know a lot about socket head cap screws and logistics, like time for a new adventure, right? (laughs) So what I did is I put myself out there, which is a thing I've gotten comfortable doing. And I wrote letters. This is back when we put letters in mailboxes. I wrote letters to the top 25 fastest growing companies in Cleveland, Ohio, which is where Uh I was living Uh at the time. And many of those, like probably six of them wrote me back. One just wanted me to join his Amway group. Um, But I had some really interesting conversations and ended up going to work for a, uh, a point of sale software company as a project manager. They were looking for um, project managers with software experience who understood, you know, point of sale and retail. I was zero for three, but I said, "Hey, um, I'm smart and you're growing, so put me in, coach." And so, so that was a, a pretty big exception. But after that, it really was, you know, playing in traffic. I when I was in grad school. 
I joined a, a competition around venture capital investing because a friend of mine said, we need you on our team. And I'd gotten to know him through classes and other volunteer work. And I'm like, all right, your team needs venture capital experience, life science experience or entrepreneurship. And I have zero for three. And he's like, no, no, you just win things. I want you on my team. Seriously. So I said, okay, yes. And we ended up winning this competition, which was wild. And that's what got me into entrepreneurship, which was off plan of what I planned to do when I went into grad school. But that was somebody nudging me, somebody who'd seen me work, who believed in me. And, and I've had many inflection points after that, um, including how I got to a media tech startup and why in the world I went to work in government. This was all people who had worked with me in some capacity and tapped me on the shoulder for an opportunity. Yeah. If you were to roll this back, because, <laughs> you know, if you were a college grad or you're in your early 20s, mm -hmm. you know, they're probably not sending off 20 letters now. It might stand out actually more if they did. But what, what's the equivalent today of sending out 20 letters? Apparently making a video on LinkedIn and serenading your future <laughs> hire. <laughs> and sending out. We're going to put that in the show notes so everyone can see that. It'll okay. blow up even more. But this, this very much goes to this second part around um, communication and presence. Mm. We know how that's so incredibly important. You talked about this before. Again, you've always been a gifted writer and, and, and sharp editor, but I want to go back to your 20s because yeah. you gave this very interesting interview. And um, in that interview that I read, you talked about actually getting ulcers trying to mimic the communication style around you was mm. a large corporate, sounds like very, you know, male conservative firm um, trying to blend in. So there's always a question of, do we adapt to our environment? Mm -hmm. Do we not? And said, you really didn't find your voice until your thirties. Mm -hmm. um, what, what could we extract or learn from your journey? And, you know, as you were talking about honing your pitch, this, this stress that you had and now kind of finding your voice. Oh yeah. Tell us about yeah, that. Yeah, no, it's been a wild ride. I mean, uh, you know, early career, I really wanted to be accepted and respected and liked. I mean, I still like all that stuff, but, but, but unconsciously, I, I think at that time I really internalized the notion, um, that fitting in meant being the same. I have since rejected the word fit when it comes to my own interviewing and the way I move through life um, and have really learned that being additive is, is where it's at. But, but to your point, internalizing that and knowing I wanted to fit in, it was maybe a little less conscious, but I absolutely changed the cadence of my voice, the way I shape sentences, um, voice, behaviors, um, really just kind of mimicking, like you said, uh, other behaviors. Here's, here's kind of an interesting artifact that, that you might not expect, you know, so I was in my twenties and I was supervising primarily men who'd probably been in their jobs for as long as I'd been alive. And I decided to start wearing heels because I wanted to be as tall as the people I was managing. I'm like, all right, they'll respect me. We're looking eye to eye. And it turns out I actually love wearing heels now. It makes me feel strong and powerful. And 
that's how I show up. It's kind of part of the Rebecca uniform and it may be part of my personal brand, if you will. So that's something that sort of stayed with me. And I collected all of these elements of where I drew my energy and my source of power to become what I hope is a more cohesive and consistent person in the way I show up to every room and, and every meeting. So, so over the years, I gained this confidence that, um, that I don't have to fit in, that it's actually really cool to stand out and be remembered and maybe cut through the clutter. Um, and I, you know, part of my uniform at the time was wearing floral dresses. I still love wearing bold colors. It is not the tech bro uniform. I, I present in a way that might be a little different from what you would assume would be a stereotypical tech startup community. Um, I'm a pretty kinetic uh, communicator. Like it's hard for me to sit still. I talk with my hands and that's again, where I draw energy and power and it's how I can be my best self. Mm. Right. And so, you know, there's certainly bumps along the way. Um, and we can talk more about like, Hey, has that always been shiny, happy and positive? No. I mean, you know, that you pay a tax, I think in, in terms of perceptions, but, but that's something I have learned to to manage and embrace as well. What what would be one example of a bump yeah. that, that occurred that you've now since you managed? Right, right. And so, right, so it's, you look at this arc and it's like, okay, I want to be accepted. I want to be understood. Um, and that was the sort of space I was in my 30s and early 40s. And, and I remember you know, in, in one case I was showing up and this was to an all women event where I was moderating a panel of five women mayors on this really meaty and complex topic of, you know, placemaking uh, and development. Um, and I was introduced as the bubbly MC, and I was like, wait a minute. Okay. Like, I don't mind being compared to effervescent champagne, but I'm not the MC. Like, you know, I've got substance. And then I'm like, hey, wait a second. I don't mind being underestimated at the beginning of a meeting or at the beginning of, of an event. It's actually kind of a sneaky superpower too, where people leave the room with a very different impression. I have the confidence now that I will deliver substance, that I will deliver a great experience. And instead of being the bubbly MC, they're going to leave with, wow, that was a great conversation. So I've accepted being underestimated, but, um, you know, but there are perceptions out there that are stereotypical that, that might sure. not feel good at first. I like that example of the bump. Mm. Now you've, you advise, you're a pitch coach. Mm. Uh, it is something that's also mentioned, uh, you know, on Donali's website. Mm -hmm. How do you bring out this voice in the entrepreneurs who you work with, right? Mm -hmm. They may be going in for pitches. I mean, entrepreneurs have to do this all the time. They've yeah. got to convince people to take the risk and join them. They've got to go raise money um, and so forth. So how do you get them to surface the voice that will work? Yeah, so um, gosh, so there's, we can talk about sort of presentation voice. We can talk about content. Um, if I think about how we show up in an investor pitch, and I particularly enjoy um, working with women entrepreneurs. I've you know, walked to that walk. Um, one of the things I have found that we can do as women oftentimes is take ourselves out of the narrative of the origin of this business and the vision for the future or 
under-credential ourselves, um, invisibilize ourselves a little bit. And one thing that is very true kind of in, with my investing hat is that with early stage companies, you know, the, the top five attributes are team, 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 product and market. And that's quoting David Cohen from Techstars. But it's all about team. You have to be in your own story. You have to be the hero of your own movie. Um, so that's one thing that I love working with entrepreneurs on is how to, you know, to include yourself in that story. And the other piece too, and this may well be specific to kind of U.S. Western culture. So let me state mm -hmm. my my bias and experience there. But it comes down to the way you even shape sentences and land a point. And if mm -hmm. I said to you, hey, Michael, I'm Rebecca Lovell, and I've got a great market opportunity, that uptalk, which is a real habit, doesn't necessarily convey that I can't wait to tell you, Michael, about a $40 billion market opportunity, right? And then pause, right? How you shape your sentence and use pauses and land your points and right. project and convey the confidence that is going to be a significant reason that investors and team members and customers will follow you on your journey. Now, if I broaden that to entrepreneurs writ large, there's no one way to show up with your style and an investor pitch. Uh, one of the things I picked up along the way uh, when I was at GeekWire building this technology media business my two colleagues are actual professional journalists and they did their own podcast. And I remember um, Todd telling me, you know, just, just be yourself plus 10%, right? Like, oh, that's great. Just turn it up to 11, right? Just amp it up a little bit. But everybody has a different style that frankly is going to project better if it comes, you know, from, from who you are within. And, and so not everyone is a, you know, barn burning salesperson. Um, as I get to know entrepreneurs, I ask them to lean into what they are best at. Some are just such deep subject matter experts that they can create a really conversational tone where it becomes so obvious that they know their subject like the back of their hand it helps people get comfortable it's like wow this person really has something special like they get it um sometimes being almost conspiratorial about it like because investors have so much fomo it's like michael i'm gonna let you in on this deal this is the best thing since sliced bread that works like everyone just needs to find a style where they feel the most powerful and then amp it up I spend a lot of time working on that with, with entrepreneurs is, is both what you say and how you say it. Yeah. So the tapping into your strength, uh, these areas that you're an expert on and how you say it. I, I do want to ask you, though, because, you know, from a lot of time in my time in Silicon Valley, right, there's also a lot of the entrepreneurs out there are selling things they don't have. They're selling visions, you know, the, you know, <laughs> blowing a little bit of smoke. And so we start to move into a little bit of a murky area here with, with ethics. And we can see how this gets abused, right? If you take some examples of, of kind of frauds that have really taken off. Mm -hmm. And so exuding confidence, selling the vision, at what point does this start to cross into you know, crossing certain lines or, or does it? Yeah. So maybe this is my naive provincial Seattle perspective, but I have zero tolerance for that. You know, and I think about, um, yes, show up with your best self, be inspiring, be energetic and passionate. Like that's what, you know, it's hard to define leadership, but those are what we believe the artifacts of leadership 
look like? So I'm thinking now back to a presentation where, you know, great presenter and, you know, it's an early stage company and we sort of talk about traction and product development. Seems like this thing is in beta. And then he talks about 25 customers in the next slide. I'm like, all right. So we get to the end of the presentation. We're like, so how do you have 25 customers when you don't yet have a product? And he's like, oh yeah, we have 25 people who said they would sign up for the beta when it's available. And we just walked away. Like we lost all trust and confidence. He was clearly not being internally consistent. He was obfuscating. He was spinning. There's no room for that. I mean, trust is hard to earn and easy to lose. And he lost it in a 10 minute pitch. So, um, I, I get that. My my view is I, I don't have any room for that. Um, I'd rather know, I'd rather him say, Hey, I've got 25 people who want to sign up for this beta. Like, great. How can we help versus feel like he's trying to pull the wool over our eyes? Yeah. So, so you don't go for that, and clearly it's not the things that you teach, but yet it does go on quite a bit, and we yeah. see it get rewarded in all sorts of scenarios. And I think it's interesting here, we both kind of, you know, come from the world of business. There is no kind of Hippocratic oath that, you know, MBAs take. Mm-hmm. Um, are there other ways to ensure that people don't cross the line here? Because it's very easy now to, there's no fact-checking that goes on, there's a lot of tweeting that, that, breaks things down to sound bites where interpretation can occur, a lot of bending the rules, so to speak. Anything that you kind of think about or would advise to people as as they think about where, where those lines might be or how to make sure you don't cross it? Yeah, I mean, and we do see a lot of line crossing these days. I mean, some pretty egregious examples. And um, and you've done your research. I will defer to your expertise, but, but also just kind of want to add, um, my friend Rebecca Bastian just wrote a piece for Forbes around CEO takedowns, right? Those get those get a lot of clicks, right? But there is extreme gender disparity in the way CEO takedowns happen, right? White guys, it's like they can uh, transgress repeatedly. I mean, actual criminal action that gets excused until some journalist, uh, some you know, citizen journalist or some tweet exposes the truth, which frankly is easier and easier to find these days with all the tools uh, that we have in the information age. So, so men get taken down after the fact for you know, proven wrongs where women um, sort of get shamed and taken down earlier for uh, perceived uh, um, inconsistencies with, say, stated values to lived experience. It's remarkable. This is a, it's a real issue. Um, I sit a little bit on the sidelines, but I'm very interested in, and how we, um, and how we get a little closer to equity when it comes to people of color, women, and, and how we are treated when we take risks and be entrepreneurial. Much is forgiven uh, for for folks in the majority. Yeah. Rebecca, you have tons of energy that clearly (laughs) comes through. And in this corkscrew career, a lot of the work you do, you know, in a, you know, service firm as well as the CEO, kind of managing energy and time uh, productivity. I read that you have a very brutal schedule, 530 you're in the gym, You do have uh, help, you know, with your child. 
Um, how do you do it or what are some of the practical strategies by which you manage things? Yeah, um, I will say that, you know, being a mom has given me a new gift around clarity and prioritization. So I've been brutal with how I prioritize. And so here's, mm. here's the filter that I'm using. If, if yeah. I'm asked to do something sort of outside what I'm already doing, um, number one, is there something unique I can contribute? Like, is it meaningful for me to be there? Two, can I learn something new or valuable? And three, does it align with my values? I have to be yes on all of those things. And then PS, it's got to be at least as interesting as my day job, which is a pretty high bar, or better than sleep because nothing interferes with my time with my daughter, Madeline. So that rubric has been super helpful for me. And, and actually, this gift of clarity helps me not just organize by schedule, but I find I'm even more efficient in communications, right? So, so I yeah. serve, I will not name the board here, but one of the, one of the organizations that I volunteer for, um, I was feeling, um, a little bit of asymmetry in terms of my own rubric. And I asked for half an hour on the CEO's calendar and I shared with him my top three priorities. And I was like, Hey, um, just to kind of give you some feedback, let's work on this. Uh, I do feel like I'm contributing a lot of unique insight. Uh, I am not getting much out of it. And my values are only sort of aligned. So let's figure this and out. You were very upfront about that. I was. And he was like, wow, thank you for the candor. Um, and, and I think that that directness he appreciated. He's a busy CEO as well. And it was also collaborative. It's like, all right, what can we do to fix this imbalance? We finished that conversation in 20 minutes. I had some great takeaways for how to rebalance this. And I gave him back 10 minutes in his day. It was awesome. There are so many productivity systems out there. <laughs> it's a huge business. I'm sure yeah. all of the audience has tried one or two of them, um, if not more. But those simple rules, I think, add tremendous clarity, mm -hmm. and particularly this example that you brought up. Yeah. I also wanted to ask you, on this front, you are the CEO, and I think many of the entrepreneurs, particularly founders, are thinking about this topic. You were quoted in one place talking about you spend a lot of time thinking about when you should be working in the business mm -hmm. versus on the business. I think these are interesting distinctions. Yeah. If you're always in the business, you're not thinking forward, so to speak. Anything you want to add to that, because I think it's a very important distinction. It's very yeah. hard. People get mired in the business and they can't think about, particularly if they're the leader, mm -hmm. um, what needs to happen to amplify, to grow, to be, you know, ahead. Yeah, it's such a simple hack for me, but calendar blocking is my best friend. So I have a rule, no internal meetings on Fridays. I don't ask my leadership team to meet with me. It's like, Friday's your day. And for me, uh, what I get to do on Fridays is community work. Like that's where I uh, carve out time for some of my volunteer work that frankly makes me better as a CEO. And I believe accrues value to my business. Sort of deep thinking work 
I mean, you wrote a book, you know, that you have to kind of get in flow and be in the zone when you are writing or drafting, you know, a new business plan or in my case, I'm, you know, think adding a new line of business. I need to be in that sort of deep work space. And so I give myself that gift of blocking every Friday on my calendar. I have found that my calendar is the boss of me. If it's in my calendar, I will do it. And so that's just a little hack for me. So super brutal and regimented, at least on what you allow or not allow into certain blocks of your time. And they've got to fit those criteria that you mentioned. Yeah, there's, I mean, of course, those are guidelines and there's exceptions, but you manage the exceptions that they come instead of just getting into that mode of operation of going from meeting to meeting. And context switching is really expensive, right? It takes you time to get sort of out of and back into character for whatever the next task at hand might be. Yeah. Yeah. Rebecca, this has been a tremendous conversation. Has there been anything that we haven't talked about that you'd like to bring up or raise? Mm, No, you have done such a remarkable job of research, which is very on brand for you, right? I think that's, that's part of your personal brand. And I will say this, you know, we sort of talked about balance and, and we all have complex lives and many people, particularly women and people of color do tend to take on extra caregiving burdens and be off ramp from careers. And all of that said, I do sometimes get a little irked when people only ask women about motherhood and don't ask men about fatherhood. And so I really appreciate the way you entered into that topic of balancing all the complexity of my life. And I will say this, because it is one of my values to create a workplace that is flexible and embraces the complexity of our lives. And for me to model that behavior is really important. And being Madeline's mom is the best thing in the world. And it does not make the rest of my life easier. Let me be very clear about that. But it's clarity. Yeah. Clarity is what makes the hard things possible. That's it. And I think that you and I have sort of played with this theme of clarity. And in our conversation, for me, that has just been so reinforced that that's what I do my best to optimize for, you know, whether it's role clarity with my executive team or communicating clearly, you know, as in that example of board service, it has been sort of the extra superpower that I've been so thankful to add over the last few years. It's one of your many superpowers. (laughs) Seattle and your community is totally lucky to have you. You know, I see lots of places around the world that People are moving around and to have people who are very dedicated to their community, making a difference, part of that ecosystem and amplifying the work of others is absolutely tremendous. Mm -hmm. Rebecca, people, (laughs) what is the best way for people to connect to you, to see your work, see the company's work? Oh, thank you. We have too many inboxes these days, right? But I, I live in my work email. That's where my calendar lives, which is the boss of me. So Rebecca L at DenaliFC.com. Check out our website, Denali Founder Consulting, where we're adding new practices and amazing team members every day. Thank you for that shout out. (laughs) Awesome. So thank you so much. Thanks, Michael. Thanks for listening to 97% Effective, where we skip happy talk and help you break through and ascend one hard truth at a time. Help others discover this show. Leave a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. 
And if you like what you heard, you can get free resources, including the first chapters of Michael's book, Get Promoted, on his website, www.changwinderoth.com. That's www.changwinderoth.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.